0: And thinking about the testimony and the times of desperation and hardship in our lives, let me ask the question, is opposition always a bad thing? No. Generally speaking, our testimony is out of times of opposition. I wonder if we could have the uh, first slide up. I'm, I'm going to be sort of down again, doing like a nod to get the thing to move along. So there we are. There's a wall of living stones. Look, Nehemiah, 4 and 5. Don't back down. Build up. So first slide. You may remember the World Cup last year. Some of you are interested in football. Brazil versus Mexico. I believe no, it wasn't Brazil versus Germany. 7-1. There was no opposition. And the Brazilians, this is photographs of the Brazilians in the crowd as they watched their team slumping to disaster, putting up no opposition at all to the enemy. And I think it was a everyone who watched it agreed it was a pretty poor match. Opposition can be a good thing. Next one. This is the Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. Do you remember he won by 97% in a democratic election? Very similar to the marvellously named Gurbanguly Guli in uh, Turkmen, who also got 97% of the vote. That's him there, you see? He gets to drive a nice sports car because he's the president. No opposition at all in an allegedly democratic election, which gives you a different sense about what we've just gone through in the last week and about the joys of being in a real democracy, whatever the failings and weaknesses we want to look at our own system. Opposition is a good thing because it makes the winning a better thing, a stronger thing, a generally a better thought-out thing. Or the next one shows that... I don't know if any of you go to the gym or work out, but what happens if you just keep using five kilogram weights for the entirety of your life? You, generally speaking, just don't get any stronger. Because resistance training, they call it, relies on, clue is in the name, resistance. If there's no resistance, you don't get stronger muscles. Opposition is a good thing. So as we look at these two chapters in Nehemiah, when the opposition... To the building of the wall that I believe you considered last week starts to happen. Good things come out of it, but it doesn't make the opposition any easier to bear. So as we get started, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for Nehemiah 4 and 5, the extracts that we heard from it. And we thank you for what you are speaking to each of us. These lessons in Nehemiah's life about opposition. Help us to be people of grace, people of patience, people of steadfastness, and Lord, we pray that you would give me the words to say today that will be of benefit to all, and you give each of us listening hearts to hear what you are saying to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to build something good for God, here in Five Head, over in Chard. We all want to be building something, and we know it's going to be hard work. We want to see the kingdom come. We want there to be light shining out of the church for the community around us, but we know that that is going to take effort and involvement by each of us individually. There are leaders, but without people building the walls, the leaders don't get very far. Nehemiah probably did lay some bricks, but he didn't do most of the work. And last week in chapter 3, you learned about all the people who were doing the work. At a time when the church's walls seemed to be broken down, where in the UK, the church seems to be in disrepute and in decline at a time when perhaps here in Fivehead you are now struggling with what are we going to do in the future and how do we want our church to grow and prosper and how should we all be involved. These are times when we want to build something and we have to look at the low points and guard them. So there's, a, there's one part of this chapter where we hear about some parts of the walls were lower than others and Nehemiah stationed guards in those low points and you in all probability are one of the guards in the low points at a time when there is rebuilding and restructuring and new things are going on here. We're going however to face opposition. Things will be happening in our own lives. Confrontation may come against us. Who knows what may come? And we have to stand together as a people to get the job done. So Nehemiah's got a great project, and he's going to be our example. Uh, He has been for the last few weeks, and he's going to be. And he needs to build a wall, but he also needs to build a people. He's got to build defences, but he's got to build his people together around him. And in order to do that, God is going to provide opposition. And that is going to help them focus on building the wall and focus on building the people. Now the event we're talking about in these two chapters, we know from something of a verse that you'll come across next week in chapter 6, take 52 days out of 1 year 2459 years ago. We can be that precise. So we're looking at a 52 2-day period 2,459 years ago. And this is a moment that is going to be transformational for the people of God for the rest of history. Nehemiah, we know, has gone back to rebuild the walls. He was an official in Artaxerxes' court. And he looked very sad when he heard the bad news about what was going on in Jerusalem. And Artaxerxes agreed to send him back. The cupbearer to the king goes off to be the governor of Judah in amongst other governates around that area who are very, very politically sensitive to what's going on. And he's going back because he wants to safeguard the people, rebuild the walls, and keep the testimony of God alive in the temple that God has allowed to be rebuilt. He's been an exile in Susa, and his brother Hanani has been the one who's come. You'll remember from the first couple of chapters, his brother Hanani stand up from Jerusalem and told him the stories and made him sad. And that has allowed God to work in his life and allowed the king to send him back. Artaxerxes sent him to scope it out. He's gone around the walls. He's looked at it. He's worked out what's going on. He's worked out that the people need encouraging, and need stirring up, and need to be told, you can do this. You may think you're beaten and broken down, and everyone's against you, and the walls are helpless, but you can do this. This is a moment that you can actually triumph for God. So why is he doing this? Why does he go? He's a cupbearer. He's got a good job. He's going because his heart is in it. He really has a heart for the things that God has said through Jeremiah. You hear him quoting the prophet Jeremiah, who is the one who said that the people would go back home again. And his people are important to him. It's not just about him and his job and keeping his head down and succeeding in Babylon. But the people of God are important to him and he wants to go and do something for them. But most of all, you sense through Nehemiah as he speaks that he knows God is in it. And he's therefore prepared to go and be the agent for God. He doesn't really know why he's going or what he's going to do, but when he gets there, he's going to be God's agent. So he loves his people. He has a hope that God is going to fulfill the promises that he made through the prophet Jeremiah. And he has the faith to take a step and act on it. So we can have the next slide. Here's a verse that has been of some importance to us in Forefront just recently. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These things are true in the church as they were true for Nehemiah. It is the hope that God is going to achieve the things that he has promised that gives us the inspiration to get going, to actually say there's something we can do here. God does intend his people (coughs) to be strong, defending one another, and being a light. It is our faith, then, that enables us to step out and say, all right, if that's what God has said, and if that's my hope, let me take a step. Let me do something to make this happen. And it is our, our labor prompted by love, and then our endurance is inspired by the fact that God is going to keep on Doing what he wants to do despite the opposition. And all the way through the New Testament, and we'll look at a couple of other similar verses later, you get this sense of this triad faith, hope, and love. It is our hope that enables us to keep going, our love that makes us want to start, and our faith that enables us to take the step in the first place. So we need to search for these things in God for ourselves. So in these two chapters, there's opposition. We've got our opposition from a chap called Sunbalat who, interestingly, is one of those characters in the Bible for whom there is lots of other reference in other writings and inscriptions around the world. The San- is there. There's a chap called Tobiah who seems to be a believer in God, but he's a governor of another region, the, the Sumerians. The Arabs are mentioned in here. The Ammonites are in here. The Ashdodites, the Kendodites, oh, no, no. All these people are in opposition to what the Jews want to do because they believe their political power is going to be eroded. And at the same time, there are the Jews who lived near them, we we find in Nehemiah chapter 4, the Jews who lived near them. So the people of God who lived near the political powers of this world. In other words, people who had made the compromises. They'd say, we want to be like the political people around us. We don't really want to be very religious. We're kind of much happier with Sambalat. Thanks very much indeed. And then there's failure among the people of God themselves. And that's what chapter 5 is all about. So chapter 4 is all about the opposition from outside. And chapter 5 is about what's going on inside. So the Jews have begun lending to one another. There have been times of hardship. There have been failures of crops. There's been droughts. We read about a drought, I think it's in Amos, that takes place a little bit before this. But clearly times are hard in many ways, and the Jews are starting to exploit one another and to lend to one another and take interest, which the law forbade them to do, and even then to sell one another into slavery, which is expressly forbidden in the law of God. And that's something that Nehemiah is going to have to overcome. Weakness and frailty, lack of faithfulness, (laughs) greed, opposition, and of course, fear. Fear of the future, which underlines so many other things. So, if you've got opposition that looks quite serious, it takes a little bit of courage to take it on. So, I don't know if anyone listens to the recordings of this, but our photograph shows... An interestingly large snake taking on an absolutely enormous crocodile. A big bite to take. If you've got something huge to tackle, something to confront, there's likely to be quite significant opposition to it. You can just bet that the photograph that follows this one, it doesn't, but if there was a photograph to follow this one, would show a really interesting confrontation. And in fact, when boa constrictors and crocodiles take each other on, it's about 50-50, Half the time the snake wins, half the time the crocodile wins. It's quite interesting. So, uh, I I mean, I'll give you an example. We rather naively, in the organization I work for, which is a Christian humanitarian organization, took on child trafficking in Cambodia about 10, 12 years ago. And we kind of went into it with a naive assumption that this is so obviously a good thing to do, to stop people selling children for sex around the Southeast Asian nations that everyone would rally along behind us. Not really cottoning on to the fact that there are some very big toothy powerful people who get a lot of money out of this trade and who have direct connections to politics in Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos and who would take us on in turn and what we thought would just be a you know let's all rally behind the children turned out to be a massive scrap that in some ways is going on to this day. And we had to make a decision very quickly. Were we prepared to face that kind of opposition in countries where we really wanted the license to operate from people who had the power to throw us out if we got things wrong? So there's a, when you take on a big new task that looks toothy and, and meaty, you expect a big fight. And at the same time, if you start to build a team to do something new and to build something that is going to last and is actually going to be important for the kingdom of God, you can expect that some people who like things to be kind of the way they were before and don't really want to have things shaken around too much are going to be upset and are going to be resistant and are going to fight back against that. And that's just normal and that happens all the time. It happened to Nehemiah. It will happen to us as well. And you need leaders and you need people who are prepared to say, no, the thing that we're tackling is important enough and big enough that we're going to get our teeth into it together. So moving along, Nehemiah then in chapter four has a response to the outside threat. And we're going to look at what I think are the seven main things that come out of chapter four in response. So chapter four, verse four, he prays, hear us, O God, for we are despised. So the first thing that Nehemiah does is he prays. And I think that came out so beautifully in the testimony, that it is the moment that you turn to God in desperation feeling despised, feeling neglected, feeling like nobody understands you and there's no way you're going to change the situation. God can overrule in every situation. And so that's the first thing that um, Nehemiah does. recent example of this that we had, we had two staff who were kidnapped by ISIS, ISIL, IS, Islamic State, whatever you want to call them, in Syria. And a friend of ours, a chap called Philippe Guitton, who's a Frenchman, went in to negotiate for their release. And the only thing he had going for him was that he was French, not American or English, which tends to get you past the first step with the terrorists in Syria. And he said there was a moment at which he was sat in the middle of a room and surrounded by people, some of whom had balaclavas on, all with their Kalashnikov rifles, AK-47s, all standing around him being threatening. And he was trying to argue for the release of two members of staff. And suddenly it dawned on him that he might have bitten off more than he could chew because they could take him just as easily as the two guys who'd already gone. And he said, at that moment, I started praying. He said, in my heart, I was just praying and praying and praying. And he didn't get the two guys back then. We got them back later. But he got away safely and he managed to have a respectful, even at times apparently religious, conversation with the people who were confronting him with guns. So to this day, in times of stress and hardship, in times when we're on our own and completely isolated, we can pray and expect God to answer. Next one, please. The next thing there is passion. So pray, you see, us moving around. Passion comes out. Verse 4 and then 5. Nehemiah is a bit of a steamy chap. He can get a little bit uptight. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. You, you can sense there's a, an anger and a real sense of, I'm going to get this done, and these people are not going to stop me. Oh, God, would you? And it's like the, the what they call imprecatory psalms. There are psalms where the psalmist appears to be asking God to do really horrible things. But it's an expression of passionate involvement. I'm not just somebody who's a little bit attached to it. This. this is, I'm really involved in this. This is the most important thing in my life. Oh, God, would you stop those people who are opposing me? And it gets really quite, quite worked up. There's an anger that comes out of Christian work sometimes that is not inappropriate. A lot of anger is inappropriate. But there is an anger about some of the injustice and the inequality and the offensiveness of the world around us that really should inspire us to get more involved and more passionate about things. And I think if God loves the church and God wants the church to be a light on the hill in a local community, that's something that we can get passionately involved in and strive to see happen better and more. So Stephen, let's have a picture of Stephen. The first martyr in the church who is out there, he's been a good deacon, he's been serving at tables, and then he is opposed, and he preaches the most steamy sermon, really quite sort of, if you read chapter eight of Acts, he really gets into the leadership and the religious leadership at the time, and basically reminds them that they've completely forgotten what they're about, as a result of which they stone him to death, and as they're stoning him to death, he compounds his error by saying, I see heaven open the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God, and they're really angry, and they're throwing stones. And he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do you think God answered that prayer? Bible quiz. Did God answer Stephen's prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them? Do we have any evidence? There was a young man holding the cloaks there at the time, name of Saul of Tarsus. And he three times gives testimony, just in the book of Acts, about how he had been a major participant in the killing of Stephen... and then later in trying to persecute the church. And he, obviously, as we all know, he becomes converted. He's confronted by Jesus as he's on the road to start wiping out churches in a distant city. And he becomes Paul and writes about a third of the New Testament for us. And if you read chapter 8 of the book of Romans, which is his great statement of the gospel... And read it, thinking about this incident. It will come alive to you in a completely different way. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, and whatever opposition there may be, he says, be it from angels or death or persecution or naked or famine or hungerness or the nakedness or hunger, famine and the sword. Whatever opposition he says means nothing because God overrules in everything. And I'm absolutely convinced, as you read that chapter, he's thinking about this time when he participated in the stoning to death of the first Christian martyr who saw the Son of Man standing next to God. And you read the end of chapter 8 of Romans, that whole sense of God is supreme over everything that happens to us and confronts us in the world comes out of this angry sermon that Stephen preached about him as one of the religious leaders of the time, Ignoring the will of God and going off and doing something different, so we can get a little bit steamy and a little bit passionate and a little bit involved about what God is calling us to do. Next one, please. Third thing then, that Nehemiah does, after he's prayed and he's got passionate, and he's really get stirred up, and you can imagine he's stirring other people up. So we rebuilt the wall, verse six, till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart the people work with all their heart so they prayed they got passionate and then they actually did something so you imagine that sense of God's love is shed abroad and we step out in faith to do something they've now started working in Africa where I was working I started working with World Vision because of the genocide in Rwanda where a lot of children were left without adults 300,000 roughly, and we were trying to work out what to do for those children. But at the end of it, we said, well, at least that will never happen again. And then HIV swept across Africa, and you suddenly found a whole generation of adults being cut through by this disease, leaving children like Chimera and Kayemba. There they are, there's a couple of kids that I met in Uganda who had no adults left in their lives whatsoever. And the tragedy of it all was that the churches were turning against children like this. They were already against some of the adults who were sick, but they were turning against the children because if there's two things that churches don't like talking about, it's sex, HIV is a sexually transmitted disease, and death, (coughs) HIV kills you in the end through AIDS. And so the churches locally were turning against the children and rejecting them, and the churches internationally were finding it very, very hard to raise money for HIV in Africa for the same reasons, that they didn't like the associations of the disease and there was a sense and in some cases there was preaching that this was brought on by the people's own sin and we should let God get on with it and kill everyone off which when you're confronted by little kids like this who've done nothing done nothing wrong themselves there's no sort of sin in their life if you like that's led them to be abandoned by adults seemed very hard and very harsh and we were trying to Persuade churches around the world to support the work that we were doing and persuade churches in Africa to take the lead in looking after these children, and they just wouldn't do it. And in the end, we prayed and we were very angry. We said the thing to do is just to start, to work with those people who really want to do it. And we started to form community care coalitions, they're called, which is like a pastor from here and a headmaster from there and a couple of health workers from here and bring them together, get the women's groups in the churches. They were always in the lead. The women's groups really understood stuff. Men never did. And say, we are the ones who need to be supporting these children in the community. And they started to work. And they had no money for it. They were raising the money themselves. They were gathering together rice each week and selling it off and doing all sorts of stuff to raise money. And they stepped in to become... Surrogate parents to 20, 30, 40 children in every village. So, if you imagine in Fivehead, 40 children probably would be about right who have no adults left in their lives at all. Nobody's looking after them. Nobody's making sure they go to school, providing them clothes, making sure they eat at all, let alone properly. And the church can take that responsibility to look after those young people. And they started to do it. And we shamed the churches in America and the UK and in other places by showing these images of local African communities starting to come together around the children in their communities. And we formed a thing called the Hope Initiative, which spread across many organizations, and various parts of, of that process are still going on, and I might tell you about another of those later. So if you just click your button, let's have another faith, hope, and love first. There you go. These three remain, Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, very famously, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But faith and hope are still there faith, hope the things that enable us to step out and to press on despite hardship but love is what motivates action in the Christian world and love is the thing that's going on forever faith and hope won't be necessary in heaven or in the new kingdom however you want to interpret that love will be there forever love is going on eternally next please defend take emergency action there were places in the wall that were lower than others, even after they rebuilt it to half its own height. And at that point, Nehemiah says, what we're going to do, because I know that they're going to attack us at these low points, is we're going to put somebody big and strong and tough with a spear and a shield and a best breastplate and a helmet, and they're going to stand there, and anybody who thinks they're going to attack the people of God through that low point is going to be met by somebody tough. And I think that's a great principle For all christian workers as we start to think about the new thing that we want to do is you have to look at the people around you the community that you've got and say who are the ones who need defending who are the the people who most need that love expressed on their behalf with strength let's make sure those people are not allowed to slip away allowed to be attacked allowed to fall let's defend the walls So, what's the single most important way to ensure that children get a good education in Africa? It's another quiz. What do you think? Find a, Find a teacher is usually a good one, right? You need teachers. Any other suggestions? Build a school, get a building, books, maybe, desks, that kind of thing. It's been an interesting debate for a long time and aid agencies recently started to run experiments where you'd actually try one thing in one place, one thing in another. And great things like bribing teachers. If you turn up, we'll give you a dollar. I mean, I don't use dollars, but... And then bribing children. If you turn up, we'll give you a meal. Bribing parents. If they turn up, we'll give you something towards the household income. Uh, Getting better books better language teaching. We tried all of those things. The number one thing, the weak link, the low spot in the wall, worms. We were talking about this earlier on. You've got to worm the children. Out of every possible thing that you can do, the first thing was to deworm children in Africa because the worms inside take all the goodness out of the limited food that they do eat, and that then impairs their ability to process information (coughs) ...through the brain, because the brain requires all manner of goodness... ...including you know all the stuff you eat from your food... ...and without it, the children weren't performing. So even if you had teachers and books and schools and all the best possible things... ...kids with worms, serious worms, won't get as good an education... ...because they spend so much time sick and get so little value out of the food. So if you're planning a response to something like education in Africa... ...you look for those low spots in the wall... ...and you say, we've got to step in and do something there... So that the rest of the stuff that we do will have its proper (coughs) impact. So we do the worms and then we provide the schools and the teachers and all the rest of that stuff and it has a better impact. So it is with every project that we undertake as, as a church and as Christians. You've got to look for the things that seem a little bit odd and seem a little bit unexpected. Get in there. Defend. Next one. Vision. Nehemiah is a great imparter of vision. He was going around impassioning people, building people up, reminding people about God the whole time. So verse 14, I think, is what I marked down here. He told everybody what they were about. I have a great example of vision. I actually met this guy once. Know him? Desmond Tutu. St. George's Cathedral, Cape Town, height of the apartheid era, The people ANC have planned a rally, the government has banned it, and they've put thousands and thousands of paramilitary police out on the streets to stop it happening. So Desmond Tutu says, let's have a church service. And he calls everybody in who is going to take part in the rally into St. George's Cathedral, and they're all there, ready for him to get up and preach, and then all the paramilitary police come in, and they're all standing around the walls. And they all take out notebooks and pens, and they've got guns kind of slung down one side, and they've got their black uniforms on. Very, very intimidating. The place is quiet. Tutu comes and steps out the front, and he says this. Looking straight at the paramilitary police. You are very powerful, but you're not gods. And I serve a god who cannot be mocked. So since you've already lost, since you've already lost... I invite you today, come and join the winning side. And the whole congregation erupts just like that, clapping, laughing, and they start dancing. And for 20 minutes, the people in St. George's Cathedral are dancing. And then he preaches the most blistering anti-apartheid sermon you can imagine. Challenging these guys to write it down as he says it remind everybody about the vision. Keep on reminding people what we're here for. What is it we're going to achieve here? So there's a verse that will come up now. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel. Faith, hope, and love. Motivating change, challenging people, driving us on, reminding us who it is that we're here for and what it is that we're doing. Next then. He makes a plan. He has a strategy. There's nothing wrong with strategies. We expect God to step in and do miracles, and He does, but He expects us to make a plan and have a strategy and get on and do something with what we've got. And it's a complicated plan. If you read from verse 16 and onwards, you have to have one member of your family with weapons while you're out there with your hoe and your hod and your mixing mortar. You have to have a sword on your side while you're carrying bricks on your shoulder. You have to have these guards on the low points. You have to station people in places around the wall. He makes a very comprehensive plan for how to rebuild the walls. I was thinking about Justin Welby going off to Egypt last week, um, talking about Christianity in the Middle East, which I'm very pleased we pray for earlier on because Christians are being pummeled and persecuted across the Middle East in a way that hasn't happened for 2000 1400 years and it, it's extraordinary just how many communities are being emptied of Christians at the moment and um, whereas in the past we could have just kind of prayed oh god look after the Christians in the Middle East now we need a plan we need something bigger we need to get involved So that's something that I think even in our day, you need to make a plan. For Five Head Church, you need a plan that involves everybody, that takes account of everyone's gifts and talents, and that enables everybody to play a part in the great new future that God has for you here from this point onwards. Next one. The next thing he did is he leads by example. He's not a leader who just gives orders from far away. He's out there with the people, carrying the weapons, building the walls, doing the stuff with the people. And he gets others to work the same way. So my example of this, in that response to HIV and AIDS in Africa that I was talking about earlier, we had a problem with stigma, as I told you. So we got a church leader, a chap called Christo, and another church leader from the Anglican church, Gideon, who were both HIV positive. And they started to work with church leaders all over Africa. They had so much energy. They went everywhere. And they would get a room full of people together like this. And they'd spend three or four hours talking about HIV and about how you shouldn't stigmatize people. And all the leaders would be saying, this, yes, that's right. And then Christo would walk forward and he would shake hands. He'd say, oh, shake hands. I'm HIV positive. And the, the Reverend would go, woo <laughs> every time. And he'd say, great, let's start properly now. And then they would talk about stigma and discrimination and how you need to respond. They would lead by example. We need leaders who will do the same thing. And the great thing about the story of Nehemiah is that anybody can be a leader. Anybody in a time of crisis can be called by God to take a lead. Next one then, there's also the internal opposition. I'm going to blitz through this one very quickly, which is more about chapter 5. And I'll do this quickly because it's usually context specific. But whenever there's a great work of God going on, in addition to the threats that come from outside, which usually bring us together, there are things that go on inside that try to push us apart. And we have to take account of that. And we have to sort out our own responses. So the first thing that happens in this then is that Nehemiah listens. You find out in verse six, when I heard. And he lists all the things that people are saying in the first five verses. And says, when I heard. He's thinking about things very carefully. The second thing he does is ponder. He says, I pondered. He's angry. He doesn't like what he's hearing. But he doesn't respond straight away. He ponders it. He thinks for a while. And he's thinking about God's law. He's thinking about what God has said in the past about the people of God charging interest and impoverishing each other and selling each other into slavery. He's thinking about what he's hearing and he's kind of working out what those intersections are. Then the third point is he confronts the, the issue boldly but fairly. He's not tackling people, though he does have some fairly hard things to say about the people who are charging the interest, but he's thinking more about the issue and what it means. And you've got to think about this. It's a 52-day period when they're being confronted by armed opposition from all the people around them. They need to get this wall built, but he is prepared to take a day out and get the whole community together to talk about this issue, because he knows if he doesn't fix this issue, it doesn't matter how big the walls are, how spectacular Jerusalem is or how great the temple is going to be. The whole project is doomed because the people are going to rip themselves apart before the walls ever get built. So many Christian projects have founded after huge great visions and plans and people pouring in loads of money and great amounts of work being done and the whole thing falls apart because people start fighting among themselves over issues of power, issues of money, issues of all sorts of different issues. And if you don't confront it boldly, you don't get a resolution. Then... He admits a bit of personal involvement. Okay, me and my people have also been lending money. It's not actually clear whether he's using himself as a good example or a bad example from that verse. But the point is, he admits that he is part of this whole process. He's part of what's going on as well. And he is going to be bound by his own rules. Then, he makes sure everybody knows the price of participation outlines it very very clearly in verse 13 that if you're going to take part in this vision if you're going to be part of this new construction this new thing that God is doing there's a price and the price involves how you live your life and how you speak about your neighbors and how you lend the money and how you receive the money back you need to live the life to be a part of the people and he's very good and several times gets people to make commitments based on the vision that he's outlined then Once again, he leads by example. So he's talking about his own generosity. He shows that he will share his food with everyone. He has hundreds of people coming to eat with him. And whatever money he's due as a governor, he uses it to feed people. He doesn't take it for his own good. And finally, he gives God the glory. In fact, even more than that, he reminds us and reminds himself whose approval he's actually working for. Not for the peoples, not for the opposition's, but for God. So God, he says, remember me and the good that I have done, because it's God's approval in the end that he's working for, not for the people around him, though that's great, but for the approval of God. And this just reminded me, we'll move on from Nehemiah, just from Nehemiah to Ni, Ni Shutzu, the guy's name was. Uh, next slide. Yep, he's became the watchman on the walls of China. So this is 1903 he's born. And at 17 years old, he has a most remarkable conversion and becomes a Christian, and not just a Christian, but a great preacher and a great leader. And he wants to build something amazing in China. He wants the Chinese church to be the strongest and deepest in the world. So he calls himself Watchman Socheng, but we all know him as Watchman Ni, because that's what they called him in China at the time. The communists are taking over China a little bit later, and he's being opposed by the communists. But worse than that, he's been rejected by his own church. His own churches throw him out. They say, you're too radical. Your preaching is too strong. The communists are going to hate us. We don't really like what you have to say about personal salvation. We'd much rather just be a kind of a club in a communist society. Next, next little part. So... He carries on preaching. He gets arrested. They throw him in prison. And for the best part of 20 years, I believe it is, and we'll see that in a moment, he is kept from seeing any of his friends from his former church. He's constantly told that he must not talk to other prisoners. He mustn't preach to them, but he does anyway, so he gets punished and beaten up and brutalized. And that man who had written so many books and preached so many sermons and done so much to build died in misery and loneliness, unable even to see his wife. But today, they say, 10 to 15% of all the Christians in China have a direct chain of connection back to the preaching, writing, and teaching of Watchman Nee. That that work that he did, despite the opposition that he faced, that work to build the walls, if you like, spiritually, of the church in China, have led to 10 10, to 15% of Christians in China being able to say, I'm here because that man preached and wrote and led the church in China for that period of time. An extraordinary thing. And he wrote something that I'm going to ask us all to stand up and read together, which was his mantra about what the vision for building in the kingdom of God actually is. So let's have that up. Let's all stand. Together. Outside of Christ, I am only a sinner, but in Christ I am saved. Outside of Christ, I am empty. In Christ, I am full. Outside of Christ, I am weak. In Christ, I am strong. Outside of Christ, I cannot. In Christ, I am more than able. Outside of Christ, I have been defeated. In Christ, I am already victorious. Thank you.